loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Judith Redwing Kesar. Redwings traversed an amazing 25-plus year journey during the infancy and evolution of palliative care. After having a transformative experience at the bedside of a dear friend, Her intention in becoming a nurse was to be a midwife to the dying and care for the critically and terminally ill. As her career migrated from oncology to critical care to hospice and palliative care, her own cancer diagnosis thrust her into the world of her patients' experiences and to facing her own mortality. Redwing Kesar is an author teacher, national presenter, and frequent contributor to the public debate about palliative care. She currently serves as the director of a unique community-based palliative care program at Seniors at Home, a division of Jewish Family and Children's Services in San Francisco, and as an adjunct faculty member of the California State University Institute of Palliative Care. She's an author and poet, and is studying to be a poetic medicine therapist. I love that phrase. We'll be talking about her work, her own experience with cancer, and her book, Last Acts of Kindness. Welcome, Red Wing. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Very happy to have you. And since you're currently becoming a poetic medicine therapist, how about if we start with a poem? I would love to do that. (laughs) We can talk more about what that means. Absolutely. This is is a poem by uh, David White, one of my favorite poets. Um, It's called The Well of Grief, which I thought was appropriate to your show. Absolutely. It starts, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. I'm having one of those synchronous moments because uh, I've been um, uh, interacting with Francis Weller uh, and oh. at a, and at a recent grief shop, workshop I went to with him, he read that poem, and and then I saw him again, and he read it again. <laughs> so <laughs> obviously, I need to go get that poem, you know, get the get the poem on my uh, something, oh my, my computer or something, and read it to myself uh, over and wow. over. It's so beautiful. It is so beautiful. I just I love the image of of the well and the gold coins at the bottom and Yes. yes and sometimes we all, we all, 
Sometimes diving into some mud along the way down, too. <laughs> yeah, really, exactly. exactly. Uh, it's, it's a good initiation into what we're talking about today because uh, what, what I felt reading your book was certainly you're very eloquent talking about how to be with end of life and also very poetic uh, in the sense that the stories you tell of people uh, really let me get to know the people that you've been with um, along the way. Um, was that an intentional thing on your part to kind of invite us into a human story and then uh, that inviting us into some knowledge about end of life? How did the book come about in that form? Uh, absolutely, it was intentional. I mean, when I... I always knew, I mean, when I started working in this field seriously back in the 90s, I always kept stories of people who I cared for in many different ways, knowing that someday it would be a book. And it was, it was very intentional to have it be stories about real people that other people could could relate to, oh, that could have been my family, that could have been my sister, friend, partner, whoever. Um, Originally, when I started putting the stories into book form, I knew I wanted three sections, which is basically, I mean, the book is divided in four sections, but the three main story parts are stories of people who died in hospitals, in facilities, and then at home in order to give people a taste of how there are qualitative differences in terms of where one dies. And Mm. one might be right for someone and, and not right for someone else. But the truth is, you know, as with everything in this territory, if we don't think about it and don't talk about it ahead of time, then... How would you know where you prefer and how would anyone around you know what your preferences are? So I really wanted to give people a flavor of, you know, what what families and people go through in those different environments. And I really debated whether or not this book was mostly for the general public or mostly for healthcare professionals. And as I really was putting it together, I realized it was for everyone and you know, I have some very specific questions in the front of the book for people who are healthcare professionals, asking them, hey, if you read these stories, put yourself in the position of anyone on a palliative care team, the doctor, the nurse, the social worker, the chaplain, the family member, and see how you would have handled this particular family story, you know, from your perspective. So, I mean, I've gotten... Really great feedback over the years from from different people in different positions reading the book, but a lot of times families saying, oh my gosh, I wish I had read that story before my family member died because it really helped me understand what, what I might have done a little bit differently. Well, I, that's, I, I just thought of it as you were talking right now, but um, that's really important. My, my first wife, I would say she had... Uh, full-on death at home you know she was in bed the last four months of her life she had a 
uh, combination of steep decline and gradual. She was in coma for a week. She, you know, no intervention, all of that. My dad, on the other hand, fell, severed the, you know, the connectors between his head and body. And so, of course, he died in the hospital. And yet, they were both very sacred to me. Very holy, exactly. and and actually, my dad's death could have been otherwise if the healthcare workers involved in his death had been more scientific about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were quite um, warm about it. I, I, those aren't exactly the right words, but they were very human about it. Let's say, um, really, really paid attention to what we needed as a family to successfully let my dad go and really really honored that. Tell me about it (laughs) because I know (laughs) firsthand it can be otherwise. And so uh, I I think that's an important thing you did to, to kind of put forth the message. No matter where you are, you know, you can make some choices, you can not make others, uh, but any way you cut it, it's possible to have a humanity brought to death. That really stood out in the book. I'm so glad because that was definitely one of the important points I wanted to get across because certainly, you know, we know from studies and various statistics that most people say they would prefer to die at home, but the truth is still only about, I think it up to 45%, maybe 50 get to die at home because it's complicated. And so when someone is in a facility or in a hospital, you know, I think so often families don't feel like it's okay to speak up. It's okay to say, no, I, I want this done this way. I want this person to be honored. And this is what we need in order to honor our loved one in this particular situation. And just always really want to encourage people to, you know, to both be an advocate for the person who's dying and for themselves because, you know, so much of what I saw when I worked in intensive care units was that, you know, it negatively impacts the grieving process when people don't have any kind of positive closure, in, especially in a hospital situation. It it's always traumatic in a hospital situation. <laughs> you feel disempowered so easily. So for people to really understand, no, it's okay to ask healthcare teams to take those extra five minutes to create whatever little kind of ritual or ceremony might be helpful for you so that in the grieving process, you feel like you did get to have closure in a way that was okay. That's so, so important. Absolutely, and I and I have to say that um, we, our family, my parents had advanced directives. You know, they had done their advance planning quite thoroughly. We all knew about it, and we were all on the same page. That's really helpful. And then number two, the the healthcare system in that hospital was a little surprised that we were so accepting. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. when they said no, he won't. He won't uh, recover from this, but we he could be kept alive on life support. We were all unanimous immediately, no, <laughs> you know. And they right. seemed sort of uh, stunned a little bit, but then they seemed relieved. 
Uh, and so I, it may be because I'm in the Bay Area, maybe there's a little more awareness of, you know, this letting go, need to need to have room for letting go of the patient, but uh, I experienced no pushback on that at all, quite the contrary. So that was indeed a wonderful thing. Absolutely. I think part of it is a function of, yes, we are in the Bay Area, we're in California, we, <laughs> we are in the state that seems to be ahead of the curve in most things, um, and certainly, you know, but also, I do think that in the last 10 to 15 years, you know, we have seen so much more information in the public about these issues. I mean, I still feel like we are a pretty death-phobic culture, but we have still come a long way in terms of having public conversations about death and dying, about grief and grieving. You know, the word palliative care, most, most people had no idea what that word meant 10 years ago. Still, a lot of people don't know what it means. Most so many clinicians still think that palliative care is the same thing as hospice, that it's only about end-of-life care, when mm-hmm. in reality, palliative care is about easing suffering at any time during an illness, from day of diagnosis onward, and addressing the fact that people don't suffer just because of physical ailments, but emotional, spiritual, psychological things affect people's suffering sometimes even more so than physical suffering. And palliative care is about really looking holistically at what's going on with the person and trying to address those issues with a team. So, you know, hospice is palliative care at the very end of life, but it's much broader than that. And, you know, there have been books written in these recent years, you know, Tua Gawande's book and, you know, and others, When Breath Becomes Air, that where people are having more conversations and realizing that, okay, folks, it's really true that none of us gets out of here alive. And the best way to cope with that is to address it and talk about it and not pretend it's never going to happen. Absolutely. Let's let's give people a little taste of how you you talk about um, people's stories in your book at the end of their lives. Can you read the section about Susie? Sure. So, um, yeah, I'll read this first. So this was this is a story about. It's called pulling the plug, and it's about a woman who I had actually taken care of in the hospital when she was first diagnosed with cancer, had been her oncology nurse, had given her chemotherapy, had gotten to know her quite well and gotten to know her family. And, you know, as sometimes happens, even nurses and clinicians get a little bit attached to certain patients. Um, So I was really very fond of this patient. And she, you know, went into remission. I hadn't seen her for a few years. And then... One night, when I was working in the intensive care unit, um, she showed up in the emergency room and had a mass and a clear recurrence of her cancer, basically went to the operating room and ended up back in the intensive care unit on what we so fondly call life support. You know, she was unable to breathe for herself, so she was on a ventilator. She had IVs. 
everywhere. She was not really conscious. And the reality of people in those situations is that, you know, usually that person is not suffering in some ways because they have so many medications dealing with their pain, kind of keeping them semi-conscious. But it's often the family members in those situations who suffer a lot more and go into the grieving process immediately. And her husband was certainly one of those people, and he was having a very hard time coping with the fact that his wife might die, that he might have to make this decision to take her off life support. So here's this little snippet from the actual story that says, Martin was deeply in love with Susie. Each time he entered the ICU, tears formed in his eyes. He understood that Susie was dying. Regardless, he would shake his head and announce that he could not imagine pulling the plug. One day, a chaplain came into the ICU to visit Susie and Martin. After his prayers for Susie, he offered to take a walk outside with Martin. When they returned... Martin's eyes revealed that a release of tears had occurred, and he seemed clearly changed. We hugged, and I asked him about his talk with the chaplain. Martin said, He helped me understand that this is not about my pulling the plug. It's not like I'm going to bring about Susie's death by taking her off the ventilator. I finally understood that stopping the ventilator is about allowing God to make the final decision and allowing nature to take its course. Taking Susie off the ventilator isn't about relinquishing hope. It's about relinquishing the false assumption that we are in control here. I don't want to let Susie die, but her fate is not up to me. I need to allow her spirit to be free. I really get it now. As a as a grief counselor, of course, that's so profound because the level of guilt that sometimes comes along with having to make those kinds of decisions, that walk that's, that the chaplain took the time to take mm-hmm. um, is now a reference point. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Which which is such a relief of suffering for the, you know, to me the palli- the the power of palliative care is not just about uh, the patient, but also about the family that has some support Absolutely. in terms of how to how to navigate. So it's Absolutely. time for our break. Red Wing, okay. it's time for our first break, and we'll come back to talk more about. Um, this kind of decisions about end of life and also how to be with end, end of life when you're not making the decisions necessarily. They didn't decide to come to the hospital because she wanted to die in the hospital. They came out of an emergency. Right. <laughs> so right. let's right. talk more exactly. about that when we come back. And listeners, okay. you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc., etc. And to find Redwin Kesar, go to www.lastactsofkindness.com. Be back soon. Thank you. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I've been talking with Redwin Kesar about her work in palliative care and her book, Last Acts of Kindness. And um, we were talking about the importance of a story to help people imagine uh, themselves in certain situations and, and really sort out how they might respond, let's say, if they uh, have a decision in front of them to... Um, remove life support as Susie's husband did or if they're suddenly in the hospital when they plan to die at home, all those different situations that uh, we maybe avoid somewhat thinking about. And that leads me to really want to dive into your own story in a few different ways. And I wondered if you would share uh, what propelled you into this work in the first place. Sure. So... I had actually avoided Western medicine for a lot of my early adult years, um, mostly believing that alternative kinds of therapies were the way I wanted to go. Um, but when I was, I, I had been a medical school dropout early, early on, very early on in my career, just to know. Um, but when I was 35 and my best friend was 30, she was in a motorcycle accident. And she was in a coma in Marin General Hospital, actually, for three weeks. And every day of those three weeks, I would go into the intensive care unit at 
Marin General and be at her side in, you know, just a horrendous situation. I mean, here was a 30-year-old who was on every level of support that modern medicine had available. It was very scary. It was hard to be around. She had many, many friends who kind of camped out in the intensive care unit lobby at Marine General back in those days. And I also had this very, very strong voice, really, that came to me regularly as I was at her bedside that basically said, this is the work you are here to do. Mm. You are here to be with people at the threshold of life and death and guide them as a midwife guides spirits who come into this world. Spirits need guidance on their way out of this world. And I felt that feeling so strongly that need for midwives in the dying process. And that was kind of before that term became more common. Uh, We talk about midwives and doulas now, but I felt it so strongly. This was back in um, 1988. And I felt that the most amazing gift my friend gave me in her dying process was for me to understand the work that I really was brought to this earth to do. And it felt very much like a gift. And it felt like the transformation that I went through in my grief process after her death was about coming to terms with my own mortality and everyone's mortality, that this is something that happens to everyone We all, in this culture, everyone has this fantasy that people are going to die in their 90s peacefully in their sleep, and that's really not how it usually happens. People die at all different ages. Young people die. You know, no one expected a 30-year-old to die and also to have some paperwork in place. So in her cabin, we found a will and basically kind of a handwritten type of advanced directive saying what was important to her and what she wanted and who the people were, who she wanted to take care of things. And the fact that she had that, when her family arrived from the East Coast, obviously incredibly grief-stricken that they're there for her parents and her sisters, that her daughter, their daughter was likely going to die, um, the fact that she had actually considered some of these things made a difference to them. Mm. It made them feel like, oh, wow, maybe maybe she knew she was going to die. Maybe she had some premonition. And the fact that she had made reference to who the people were that were important to her and what was important to her in living um, was just a very important piece that I think helped kind of everybody, but especially her her family members, through an incredibly, you know, tragic death. Um, So really it was right after she died that I realized I had to be a nurse because in order to be a midwife and get to the bedside, I needed a whole other set of skills and knowledge. (laughs) 
<laughs> for people to trust me in that role. So that's what I did. And first I was an oncology nurse and then critical care and then hospice and palliative care. And um, you know, I had my own did, nonprofit for a while. But yeah, that's it's been quite Did you pick oncology because you thought that would involve working with people facing death or because uh, it's interesting uh, my wife was sick during that same period and there was just there was hospice but there wasn't a ton of palliative care and and it felt to me like the oncology nurses were the ones who could be with you (laughs) you know or or be with us you know Um, that's right that's right. So much better than, for instance, she had to have a bunch of surgeries. That was not a good experience emotionally. Uh, much, much less well supported. So is that what it was like for you as a nurse, that the, those were the people that would would uh, kind of face right. up to? I mean, yeah, because, you know, the reality of cancer, especially cancer back in the 80s and early 90s when it was even less curable, quote, and treatable than it is now, um, you know, you had to have, go into that with a certain, you know, for me, sort of spiritual outlook and level of compassion because everyone you worked with was suffering incredibly on a lot of different levels, Um, you know, because people of all ages get cancer too and are are afraid of dying and what it means and afraid of how sick they're going to be and there's so many issues that you know you have to be able to show up for in a different way when you work in oncology um you know it was also for me personal because my sister was diagnosed in 1990 with a very aggressive um, inflammatory breast cancer and was told she would have three to six months to live if she did not have a bone marrow transplant and maybe three years if she did. And she did have a bone marrow transplant and she was actually a statistic because she lived for 11 years. And That really was a cusp moment because uh, similarly, Joanne was given six months to a year to live and lived eight and a half years with with multiple myeloma, which was at that point, you know, pretty much, for want of a better way to put it, a drop dead illness, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a really different landscape and it makes sense that that would have fit with your epiphany about what your life was, what your work was going to be. But but also, as I mentioned in your bio, um, you had cancer yourself a few years ago, and I'm really curious how that influenced how you look at things that you've worked with for all this time. Um, did that? How did that affect how you how you if it did uh, how you think about these issues? Uh, it definitely. It definitely had its effect. It still does. I was diagnosed in 2013 with ovarian cancer and, um, you know, have have since spoken with a number of clinician colleagues who have also been diagnosed with cancer. And it just, at the beginning, it's all so surreal. You know, I remember getting the phone call from the radiology department and, you know, telling me the details of 
my ultrasound. And of course, I was writing down the details as if this was for, for a patient. You know, mm. oh, there's this and there's this. And I, you know, unfortunately, too well understood what the details <laughs> were that they were telling me. And, you know, you have those moments of this can't really be me that they're talking about. This is what I do for a living. I take care of people who get these, these diagnoses. This can't be happening to me. But then you have to stop and say, why not? You know, you're a human being just like everyone else, and this happens to everyone. And I think more than, I mean, I spent so much of my career working with a lot of cancer patients and people who suffered incredibly, you know, some lived, some died. But whenever someone is in cancer treatment, there is certainly a lot of suffering always grief about the fact that you can't be who you have thought you were. And I think for me, that reality was was very intense for, for quite a long time and put me into a level of compassion and empathy for people I worked with in, in a very different way because it was such a visceral feeling and... You know, for as long as you're in treatment, no, you're 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 not your professional, you know, hat. No, I'm not the nurse right now. I'm the patient. I'm not going, you know, jogging or walking or swimming for miles. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of limitations that I had never had before. I can hardly walk down the stairs and walk back up without getting short of breath. I mean, all those realizations of like, whoa, this is happening to me. And being able to then understand, especially what it's like for, you know, younger people who are suddenly having to live an entirely different life because of a disease and a treatment process. You know, my my fantasy is that would somehow deepen your presence, I guess is what I want to say, uh, that people seem to be, in my experience, seem to be able to feel if you've been somewhere personally. Yes. yes. Um, I think that's very true. And I certainly... I feel that especially, you know, now when I am consulting with someone who has cancer, you know, we're just having a conversation and the minute that I reveal that I also went through this process, it's like the conversation stops for a minute, a deep breath gets taken and they realize, oh, you do understand a different level of what I'm going through. Mm. And so n- not only open up to me, right? So not only w- maybe would they feel it, uh, you know, without you having even said it, but then once you do say it, they relax into the conversation more because Absolutely. they have something in common with you. Absolutely. You know, but I'll also say there's the other side of the coin that. You know, I mean, I don't reveal it to everyone. And when I came back to working full-time right after treatment or some months after treatment, 
Uh, you know, the first few times that I was consulting with people who had serious cancer diagnoses, especially if they had this uh, ovarian cancer diagnosis, it was very challenging for me. You know, it just it triggered things. It brought things up. It brought own, brought up, you know, triggered my grief about my illness, my sadness for them because so often they were in a different stage and we're not going to get through it. I feel very incredibly grateful that I got through treatment as easily as I did and I feel as strong as I do now going forward. That That's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, I teach clinicians about working with cancer, illness, and end of life. And mm-hmm. um, there's this there's this thing that, therefore, I've thought a lot in the last three years that I've been doing that about the way in which my greatest personal gift in working with people in the cancer world who are ill, who are in deep loss, is my experience. And then, on the other hand, it does bring up my own experiences sometimes I have to create some proportion there where you know I'm taking care of myself because it's not uh, it's not clinical it's not an idea you know Uh, (laughs) it's not not just an idea this is this is reality reality well and for instance uh, reading your book for the show today um, boy there were a couple times when I went right back to those rooms I was in with with people I loved so deeply dying, and there's a sense of wonder and awe, and there's also some pain there. Of course, of course. Uh, I mean, so that's the thing about grief, it doesn't just you know, it's not a linear thing that starts in one place and ends in another. It's an ongoing cycle for life that spirals around and. You never know when something is going to come out of the blue and trigger it, you know, a story, a a poem, you know. Amen. That's a good time to take take a a second break, and then we'll come back to these things that come to our minds when we get back. Uh, Listeners, you can can find me on the host page or at weatheringrief.com. You can find Red Wing Kesar at www.lastactsofkindness.com back after the break your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
real-life solutions. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Red Wing Kesar, author of Last Acts of Kindness. And Red Wing, before the break, we were talking about this kind of dual experience where uh, the way in which we can be present with people who are very ill or at the end of their lives is re- really grows because of our own personal experiences. But also there is the, I guess we could say, side effect that our own experiences stay very present uh, and sometimes get um, get triggered by our work, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I, for myself, I experienced that very positively, uh, like as a gratitude process <laughs> in some way, but also sometimes painfully. And I don't know if right. those are actually discrete categories, but you know, <laughs> some 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 moments are more painful than others. And I wondered what what uh, how you. Um, experience that? Well, I think the same is true for me in terms of the triggering can be a positive or a challenging triggering. I mean, I think to imagine that that's never going to happen is crazy. I mean, we are all human beings and even those of us who do this work professionally, you know, it, it was always odd to me in nursing school, you know, the way you are so cautioned about, you know, not showing any feelings and not befriending any patients and not having any emotional attachment or connection to anyone. And, you know, certainly there's a part of that that's understandable, but it's as if you can disconnect all the parts of yourself and when you work in this field, which is such an intimate field, working with people with with serious illness and who are close to the end of life, I mean, your heart does get touched and get opened, ideally. (laughs) Ideally, for sure. I mean, I think so much for me, you know, being... The triggers being around people who... Maybe their disease process or their story touches something personal in me. It does bring me back to my own gratitude for life and kind of reconfirms that commitment to live every day as fully as possible because we do never know, you know, what's in store around the next corner. And having had a cancer diagnosis, I am just so acutely aware of that reality that, you know, I read statistics about my disease. It's it's rare that people live 10 years, but I'm planning on living 20. Um, But it's not like all those human parts of us go away and get tucked back into our pockets when we are being our professional selves. 
And, you know, as someone who uh, works in the psychosocial realm, um, the practitioners who allow themselves to have a human experience with patients really ease the way. Um, Honestly, in support groups, we talk a little bit about dying and about death, but we talk a lot about healthcare practitioners. (laughs) And and not because I've brought it up, but because that's what's on people's minds, like someone was really cut and dried or didn't leave enough time or uh, told you bad news, like it was nothing or, you know, all those things affect right. people's emotional well-being so, so much. And Absolutely. if we allow ourselves to be touched, I think it's less likely we're going to behave that way as uh, people in the healthcare world. Yes? Absolutely. It's absolutely <laughs> one of the reasons why I am becoming a poetic medicine therapist because um, – there's this whole field called poetic medicine, which is about using poetry and as a means for, I mean, for everyone, but in my case, I see it as working with clinicians as a means and a venue to actually express some of the challenges and the difficulties of what it is to be working with people day in, day out who have serious illness. I mean, it is hard on clinicians, and everyone has different ways of handling their own grief about the fact that many of their patients are going to die, you know, some sooner than later, but they all have really serious illness. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen it work that when you, when you give people space and tools to express some of that pain and and grief of what it means to be in this field as a clinician, it's really, really helpful. And I'm really excited about about doing this work going forward. I actually have a small grant with John Fox, who's the director of the Institute for Poetic Medicine. We're doing a little mm-hmm. pilot project at UCSF to help clinicians um, use this modality for healing for themselves. That's fantastic. I have to look that up, <laughs> actually, yes, because Institute it just for draws me medicine. so. Institute for Poetic Medicine. I mean, that just shows to me the kinds of changes we've been undergoing in yes. healthcare since I started being aware. Just in that, say, thirty years, mm-hmm. how much is so so different? Uh, can you imagine? An Institute for Poetic Medicine. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. And we were talking in the break about how, um, you know, having having palliative care, which is geared this way towards music and and ritual and presence and poetry, you know, kind of human to human, um, we were... I was saying I'd like to see every cancer diagnosis come along with a palliative care referral. You seem to agree Absolutely. with that. Can you can you talk just a little more about your dreams for palliative care? What you think the next uh, my, yeah, ter- horizon my might be? Well, it's 
it's a steep walk to that horizon, but I mean, palliative care has definitely come into being more and more in the world of, of cancer. I think it's important to understand that it's applicable for people with any kind of serious illness. Um, it's sort of easier to imagine with cancer because you kind of, you get a diagnosis and often there's a kind of, you know, a trajectory that we may know a little bit about. But, you know, there have been lots of studies, starting with the huge study in 2011 or 12 by Dr. Jennifer Temmel at Mass General in Boston, you know, really showing that people with with lung cancer who received palliative care along with whatever treatment they were getting from day of diagnosis on, not only had better quality of life, but actually lived longer. And there have been subsequent studies that are showing the same results with different cancers. I mean, for a lot of us, this kind of research is is great, but it's also a no-brainer of like, well, of course, if somebody is diagnosed with a terrible illness and they are receiving emotional and psychological and spiritual and financial support from from the time of diagnosis, of course they're going to do better. <laughs> of course they're going to have a better quality of life. And if they have better quality of life, they likely will live longer. So I think it's the dream of most of us in the field of palliative care is for referrals to be made right at the very beginning when people have a serious illness. I know for me, when I would be in the infusion center getting chemotherapy, I was shocked at how many people in, you know, who were also in the same boat as I was had no idea what palliative care was, had no doctor had ever mentioned it to them that they could have a referral to the palliative care team. And, you know, UCSF has has some of the greatest palliative care clinicians in the country, and yet Absolutely. their doctors weren't telling them about it. So, and yes, my dream is yes, for and also to know the about it. also the confusion that uh, if people have heard the word, it's so strongly associated with hospice that they think they're hearing that they're dying. Exactly. Um, exactly. So it's it's very where really it's it's about supporting life. The other thing I hear in there is just, uh, let's say we aren't going to live any longer. Those days still matter <laughs> between uh, a diagnosis and the end. They they really matter. And maybe even more than some other days in your life uh, is what I've come <laughs> okay. to, to think. That there's so much potential in those days for people and their families if they're invited into... Uh, uh, interacting with what's happening, I guess. Exactly. Having some support. It's about, right, right. Kind of admitting what's happening, looking at it, and looking at all that it brings up. And, you know, let's face it, most surgeons, oncologists, cardiologists aren't going to take the time in your... 15 or 20 minute visit to really go into all the other realms that are involved when you have a serious diagnosis. So there have to be other teams to do that and that's what palliative care teams are about. And, you know, really 
for anyone who's listening who might be involved with someone with a serious illness, ask. Ask your clinicians about referrals to palliative care teams. Um, it's just, it's so, so important and so helpful. I mean, I feel like because I was in the field, I did have palliative care from the day of diagnosis onward, and I feel like it made a huge difference in how I processed everything that I had to go through. Well, I'll just keep making those referrals. I'm mentioning right. it in my groups every time there's someone new because I agree with you makes such a difference and uh, obviously there's a lot to learn to work in palliative care and then on the other hand to me the simple concept that it's about facing what's happening together uh, seems to guide you know Red Wing we're coming really close to the end and I'd like you to share Touching Death your poem before we leave We have only a couple of minutes left. Okay. So, and just to preface it by saying, you know, for me, writing poetry is a way of dealing with and healing the grief that I experience on a regular basis working with people who are dying. So, for me, it's a very powerful tool. Great. This poem is called Touching Death. I touched death today arriving moments after the last wisp of air from the final exhalation blew into the light wind above Paradise Cove, a fitting place for the dissolution of the elements. Golden yellow skin, jaundice from the French jaune, still warm for a while longer as spirit exited slowly, so slowly, from the soft of a venerable, gentle man. Looking out to the deep blue of the bay, the gray blue of the sky, the dark steel blue of the bridge, my aging hand on his bony chest, in life and in death, reminding me again and again how thin the veils, how fragile the body, how sacred each in-breath. How strong that which resides within. Call it spirit, life force, God. In this case, call it Larry. Thanks so much for being with me. Listeners, go to lastactsofkindness.com. Next week, I'll have Emily McDowell, whose amazing empathy cards have removed the excuse that you don't know what to say when a loved one is facing a crisis. We'll be talking about her new book, There is no good card for this, what to say and do when life is scary, awful, and unfair to people you love. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.